Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The summer has been marked by deadly and destructive fires, floods, and the hottest temperatures ever recorded in many places. An evacuation order remains in effect for all 20,000 residents of northern Canada's city of Yellowknife. Emergency management officials in Hawaii are still tallying the toll of an unprecedented wildfire there. And tribal officials all over are reassessing their preparations for such disasters. We'll hear more coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A first-of-its-kind report on missing persons in Alaska has been released. The State Department of Public Safety and the Anchorage Police Department collaborated to collect the data. Austin McDaniel, a spokesperson for the Public Safety Department, says the report maps out hundreds of cases going back to 1960. We think this is a good first effort. And we're definitely interested in adding additional data points. McDaniel says the work, which is an outgrowth of the governor's People First initiative, will be updated every quarter and can be found online. In the last quarter, from April to June, 200 Alaska Native or American Indian people went missing in the state. Most of them have been found, except for 25. The database has an important new feature. It categorizes the circumstances surrounding the disappearances, identifying those which are suspicious. As director of the Data for Indigenous Justice Group, Charlene Uphook welcomes the new report and says it's what advocates for missing Indigenous people have been asking for for years. She worked on an earlier attempt to track their numbers. Sadly, I think what this really illustrates is a systemic issue of violence that's being perpetrated in our community in the state of Alaska, and that should raise flags and alarms and really start igniting justice. She hopes the database will continue to improve and provide more information about those missing, including their hometowns and Native cultural identities, so they become more than just points of data, but reminders of loved ones lost to their families. Indigenous groups in Guatemala say they're prepared for massive protests, if necessary, to defend the results of last weekend's election. The vote saw a landslide by an anti-corruption candidate, which the Guatemalan government's now trying to overturn. Maria Martin reports. About a dozen Maya and other indigenous groups met recently in the community of Totonicapan in the western highlands of Guatemala. They later issued a statement addressed to the people of Guatemala and the international community. In it, the influential Maya Quiche organization, 48 Cantones, 48 Villages, speaking for the collective, expressed profound concern at Guatemala's constitutional crisis, which they say is a result of, quote, constant and flagrant violations of the Constitution by an entrenched corrupt group that seeks to hold on to power. It's time for people to defend their vote, says 48 Cantones President Luis Pacheco Gutierrez. And to show that Native people, along with all Guatemalans, are uniting to oppose wrong decisions that are being taken. 
enough is enough, he says. The indigenous authorities of Sololá, meanwhile, say if Guatemala's Attorney General Consuelo Porras continues to destroy democracy, they'll be forced to take over highways, airports, and offices of the public ministry. They're also calling for Porras's resignation. For National Native News, I'm Maria Martin. The St. Regis Mohawk Tribe in New York has received an initial distribution of $1.3 million from a group of nationwide opioid settlements. The tribe was part of settlements reached in 2022 with drug manufacturers and distributors. The 2018 lawsuit contends companies that manufacture, market, and distribute opioids carried out a scheme to make individuals believe that prescription opioids were safe, non-addictive, and could be used without long-term effects. The complaint alleges that the scheme created an opioid epidemic that has ravaged tribal communities. The tribe has been working to combat the impacts and the settlement will be used to support programs and services. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Colorado Plateau Foundation, supporting Native-led initiatives protecting plateau lands, waters, and cultures by building networks, community, and organizational capacity. Grant proposals accepted through September 2nd at coloradoplateaufoundation.org. Do you have feedback, stories, or ideas that you want to share? Now through September 4th, visit online at koanic.org survey to share feedback and be part of defining our future. That's K-O-A-H-N-I-C dot org forward slash survey. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. State officials in Hawaii just released the names of 388 people who remain missing since the devastating fire in West Maui. Communities there are assessing their next moves after the fire left 115 people dead and destroyed cultural sites, homes, and businesses. We're going to get an update on the aftermath of that fire later in the show. In Canada, the city of Yellowknife and outlying First Nations communities remain evacuated from fires in the Northwest Territories. We'll get updates about those fires and perspectives about the changing nature of tribal emergency management in the wake of the threat of increasing severity and frequency of fires, floods, and other weather-related disasters. Please join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our first guest is on the line. Leela Gilday is an award-winning singer-songwriter currently under evacuation. She is from the Diné Nation in Yellowknife. Leela, you've been on our show before. Welcome back to Native America Calling. Leslie Cho, thank you so much. Absolutely. Now, I know you had to flee Yellowknife because of the fire last week. How are you and your family doing? Um, we're doing okay. I think we've moved from, um, you know, crisis mode into survival mode, I would say. Um, okay. Definitely uh, expecting to be away from our home for at least another two weeks, if not more. And uh, so, yeah, we're trying to make, make the best of things. Um, and there's uh, many things that have happened that have been really encouraging, and um, our family down here has been 
taking care of us and um, my husband had some medical appointments that were managed to transfer to a facility here um, in Edmonton. So I think overall we're we're definitely um, you know grieving the, the the loss of this time in our home, but uh, but still hoping for the best. Okay. Well, thoughts and prayers to you and your your husband and the rest of your family. And I understand uh, you you got your dog with you, right? You fled with your dog, and I think your parents as well. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I brought we I brought actually my husband was. Um, was trying to get home. He was already in Edmonton and his flight was canceled. And at that point, I thought, that's it. I have to go. And um, my dog was with me. And I finally convinced my parents to come. They were like, no, just wait till Sunday to left flights. And I was like, I don't think you understand. I think they're going to evacuate us. And because that has never happened before in our in our town. There's only one road out of town. Um, and I think that's partially why the um, officials decided to make that call, uh, because there's no if 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 the fire the direction that the fire is coming from, um, you know, it would have taken out the airport and blocked the, the roadway. So they wanted to get the residents to safety. So um, they made the call um, on the Wednesday, and we had left a few hours earlier. Okay. So what is the situation like there in Yellowknife now? Are you in communication with people there? Do you know what's going on? Yep. Um, actually, our the fire has been basically, there's about 300 firefighters and up to 1,000 other personnel working on major fire breaks around the city. And it's crazy to look at um, the, they've terraformed the like the land around Yellowknife and created these large fire breaks um, the size of a soccer field and stretching for several kilometers, um, really trying to keep the fire at bay uh, because it is still very hot and it's it's about 40 kilometers. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and take uh, another call, uh, another one of our guests here who is joining us right now in uh, Long Beach, California, Jake Heflin, and he's the president and CEO of ITEMA, the Tribal Emergency Management Association. He is Osage and Cherokee. Jake, welcome back to NAC. I know you've been on the show as well, too. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and... uh uh, let's take April. I think April is on the line. We've got a third guest who is going to join us. Uh, all right, we're coming back on live. Sorry for that little technical glitch there. Uh, Leela, hi. Uh, sorry we dropped hi. you there. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> okay. Maybe the, maybe the fire is having effect uh, way down here in Albuquerque. I'm not quite sure. But at any rate, uh, thanks for your patience. And uh, so, yeah, you know, you were telling us a little bit about what's happening there uh, in Yellowknife and and the crew that are on site. And now, Leela, you were an artist. Uh, You're a musician. You're a singer. You're a guitar player. You're a songwriter. And uh, how is this impacting you, just the fire itself in terms of just your lifestyle and your art and just, uh, you know, your whole life? Well, I think, um, you know, the the impacts that will have the creative impacts, for me, it, it takes a while for things to, to process. And, um, you know, I have my guitar with me and all my music equipment. I did pack that um, before we went. Um, but I'm still in this, like, survival mode that I'm not able to... Um, I'm not able to write songs right now about this 
because I'm very much in the moment in the situation. Um, so I, but I think uh, eventually I'll be able to use my music to process a lot of this. You know, the greater conversation is climate change and how our, you know, since the Industrial Revolution, um, our our development as humans and has been far away from like our traditional values of living in balance with the earth. And so this is the, this is the result, like all of these climate crises that we're seeing um, is the result of that. And uh, it's hard to deny it when you're living it, when you're a climate refugee, um, it's, it's much easier to understand that we're, we're living on borrowed time here. You know, um, we have to move back to, a much more balanced way of living with this earth that's our mother that provides for us uh, because otherwise we're going to to continue devastating it and there won't be anything left for our children. So, um, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, you know, all all through my musical career, my, my music has focused on that connection with the land, connection with the water, because that's like a Dene way of life um, is we're not separate from the land and the water. And so to be um, driven from my home by a natural event like this, it really hits it home, hits that message home for me. So I've been thinking a lot about that and how, you know, much more important it is to communicate those, those messages of, um, of trying to shift back to a way, an old or a new way of life in, in the, in the future. Well, Leela, I sure do appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today and thoughts and prayers for you and your family going forward and all of the people of Yellowknife there. I know it's a small community and uh, we're thinking about you here uh, in the States as well as all over Turtle Island. So you take care of yourself, okay? Masicho, yeah, there's been many um, other, our, our small communities, Enterprise was totally like 90% gone. Um, the communities of Hay River, Fort Smith, Kakiza are all under major threat. So it's not just our, our community in Yellowknife and Dada and Dilo, but other other parts of Denende. And so thank you so much for um, giving me time to talk about this and um, really appreciate your prayers and thoughts. Masicho. Absolutely. Take care, Leela. And I'm going to go ahead and bring our, our next guest, Jake Heflin, into the conversation. Jake is in Long Beach, California, and he's the president and CEO of the Tribal Emergency Management Association. Jake, hi. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm very good. Thank you. All right. Appreciate it. And uh, we heard Leela mention climate change. And, and, you know, we're seeing these record-setting wildfires, other natural disasters all over the globe. And what's driving that trend, Jake? Uh, what's your thought on that? Well, I think we're seeing changes. I think we're seeing changes around around the world. And I, I think those changes are, I think, climate change is a, is a contributing factor to that. Uh, I think the idea, though, is that preparedness drives uh, the ability for people to prepare for these unforeseen events, uh, whether they're a storm, a, a wildfire, an earthquake. And I think that it's important that we have these conversations very candidly within our tribal communities to, to make sure that we're ready. I mean, I, I would say by nature, we historically are always ready. I mean, we're, we are amongst the most prepared and resilient people because we're still here. We're still practicing our culture, our language, and our traditions. But it's important that we have these conversations with our families because preparedness starts with a simple conversation around the table with your family. 
We're going to go ahead and take a break here in just another minute. But anybody who's listening today, if you have a question or a comment or you would just like to to uh, wish uh, our guests, any of our guests well today. We've got Leela up in Canada there uh, outside of Yellowknife, and uh, we've got other guests as well who are going to join us. And it's certainly a, a tough time throughout many Native communities with uh, the fires and the other disasters that have just seemed to just be occurring with uh, reoccurring frequency. So give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That is the number, one 800 996 2848. We're going to go to break now. Millions of low income people will lose Medicaid coverage over the next year after a pandemic safety net is expiring. Native Americans are among the populations that are especially affected by the coming changes. We'll find out the important information and what people can do to prepare on the next Native America Calling. Did you know that bare space is best when it comes to your baby's sleep? That's right. When you keep their crib free from toys, pillows, blankets, and other loose objects, you can drastically reduce the risk of suffocation. All your little one needs is to be placed on their back atop a tightly fitted sheet to ensure a safer night's rest. More infant sleep safety information at cpsc.gov. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Today we're talking about the effects of wildfires in Yellowknife and Hawaii. We're also taking a look into what tribes are doing around natural disaster preparedness. If your community is dealing with fire, floods, or other natural disasters, please join this conversation. Call us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And uh, we've got our phone lines open right now so we can take your calls. We've got Jake Heflin on the line right now. He's in Long Beach, California, and he is with the Tribal Emergency Management Association. And, Jake, uh, there where you are in Southern California, uh, the first tropical storm in nearly a century occurred earlier this year. Uh, we've got major storms in Texas. And uh, is there a way to predict some of these events? Because they just seem like they come out of nowhere, and then everybody's just kind of scrambling with, with how to respond. Well, I think the first step in that process is is to stay informed. And I think staying aware of what's happening around you by uh, what we call the Lisos California Five Steps of Preparedness, the first step in that process is signing up uh, for alerts and get, get alerts and knowing what to do. And I think those alerts will typically come from news sources that you can trust, and, and whether it's television or radio or a landline phone or cell phones or social media. The idea is that that information becomes essential for you to make timely and informed decisions on something that's happening from from tribal government it becomes our landline to communicate to our our, our community members uh, to make sure that they're aware and they're informed that something may be occurring okay now we hear sometimes that w- when these really bad fires hit or other disasters cell service goes out and, and we're so dependent on our phones for text messages and alerts uh so What's the role of landline here or, or other forms of communication? Because it doesn't seem like we can rely uh, on cellular technology in these kinds of situations. 
Well, and I think that is uh, an absolute lesson that will be, I'm sure, discussed today on today's call with uh, Lahaina. I, I think that the reality is that we have become very reliant on technology, uh, but there are still those things that we have around in our homes, whether that's a, a hand-operated radio, uh, you know, battery-powered, uh, an AM station that many tribal communities have in their local areas that can access that. That that becomes a very good source for information, and then. Obviously, uh, you would look at other things that you can grow and, and evolve into, and that's amateur radio. Uh, so I think the idea is a battery-operated radio becomes an important lifeline to hear about some of those informations that can still be available and accessible, uh, even if we do lose power, per se. Uh, and that's part of your, your making, a, making a kit and making a plan. And Jake, you work with a lot of different tribes in different parts of the country. And overall, how well prepared do you think most tribes are when faced with a natural disaster threat in terms of, of their infrastructure, the resources they have, the technology at their disposal? I think a lot of it is predicated on the resources that they have available to them. And many, uh, I've seen some very robust uh, tribal communities that, uh, a matter of fact, uh, you're going to have one of the guests from one of those very robust programs, and they've put a lot of effort and emphasis into that process and preparing and, and creating these emergency management programs as well as fire and EMS. And then you have many tribes that don't have the capacity uh, to develop those resources, whether it's from the economic development perspective or they just don't have the resources coming in. And that's where we also have to work diligently to hold uh, the federal government accountable to that because there is a trust responsibility to help and support tribes that do not have those capacities to grow and evolve into that because it's essential that we are able to, to rely on ourselves. And relying on local jurisdictions uh, through MOUs and other things can be very dangerous because those jurisdictions may be there when we need them during blue skies conditions, but when that disaster strikes, those resources may not be readily available unless they're coming from within. All right. Well, let's go ahead and talk with, with somebody from one of these tribes that has a very robust tribal emergency management system. Joining us now from Atmore, Alabama, is April Sells, and she's the Tribal Emergency Management Administrator and a director for the Porch Band of Creek Indians. She is Porch Band. April, hello, and welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Absolutely. In April, Alabama is not immune to, to some of these uh, really, really harsh uh, disasters and storms. This summer, you've experienced a high, vol highly volatile tornado season this year. What's been the impact there on the porch band? So, um, so let me, uh, I'm, I'm actually on the Porch Creek Indian Reservation. Uh, we, we, uh, we make sure that everyone knows uh, Atmore is the city close to us. Um, I'm actually on the, the reservation today. Um, not unlike anybody else, we have, um, we have been spared. Uh, there has been tornado activity around us. The heat it has been a big issue. We have not had an issue with wildfires. Um, I have um, told other people, and other people don't necessarily believe me, but I believe our ancestors are taking care of us. We can have storms that come right up to the boundaries of the reservation, and for some reason, um, those storms would dissipate and go around us or not even come close to us or come within uh, five or six miles. I always say our ancestors is looking out for us. Um, they're trying to do the best that they can to take care of us with all the decisions that have been made before us or are currently being made, 
in tribal communities across the country, but our ancestors are still taking care of us. Well, it's good to know the ancestors are looking out for for the porch band as well as tribal nations all all across Turtle Island. And April, tell us a little bit more about the tribe safeguards against these tornadoes and, and just other types of, of weather threats there. I know the hurricanes can, can come in from the coast as well. So you folks have really ramped up your resources and, uh, and your infrastructure with regards to, to taking care of uh, your communities, right? Yes, yes, we have. We we certainly have. So, um, and I want to um, thank Jake for everything that he said prior to um, us carrying on this conversation. Everything uh, Jake has said about getting your families prepared, make sure they have alternate resources um, to get information. That is a plus in um, not only Indian community but anywhere in the country. Um, yes, we have been able to do a lot of robust things, and I will just go through a, a, a few of them that um, we currently have. Um, so our subdivisions that are located on the reservation, we now have um, tornado shelters uh, that is strategically located across the, um, uh, the tribal communities and the reservations. Uh, we were we were able to tap into some resources through the state of Alabama with HM. Um, uh, PG funding, and we were also able to um, allow individuals within the community to get their own individual safe rooms if they did not want to travel um, to the community safe rooms, they would be able to um, access uh, one of those in their own backyard. Um, we've also um, put, and I know sirens are an issue across the country, and we have taken um, sirens away out of our community and um, added something called hyperspike. Um, so hyperspikes was originated during the Gulf War and it allowed the um, soldiers to, um, to uh, hear or they would be notified of incoming missiles. So we took that technology and along with our fire panels and another program, uh, we have painted a 10 mile radius around the reservation and whenever there is a storm, lightning strikes, um, whether it's um, a tornado warning or tornado watch, um, it will automatically signal um, those hyperspikes and that will notify the community. Now, again, going back to what Jake said, um, speakers, uh, tornado sirens in the community, what that does is allow those individuals who are outside to be notified of what is going on. It doesn't necessarily uh, penetrate the walls of a home or into um, a building of something of that magnitude. So what we've had to do is take that and um, expand it to, um, if anyone knows about a fire alarm system, uh, we all know that there are speaker strobes attached to that system. So we can make those notifications inside our buildings with those speaker strokes. What we're working on now is our hotels uh, that the tribe owns. We're going to be able to notify individuals in their hotel rooms of impending um, disaster, such as a tornado uh, warning. Uh, we won't do it for watches, we won't do it for lightning strikes, but we will let them know what's going on if, if they are under a tornado uh, warning. Uh, so there's a lot of things that we're doing. Um, of that magnitude, it just takes time. It takes time for you to 
um, sit down, plan, get a plan of action, uh, try to get the funded together, and then be able to address the needs. Because uh, like us, you know, a lot of this works on Wi-Fi, so there's got to be infrastructure, infrastructure build out in order for us to be able to do that. One of the things that we have realized is there's always a discussion, well, do we notify or do we not? Is it going to pass us by or is it going to hit us? And that's something that people don't understand the, the weight that's on emergency managers' shoulders. Um, we make decisions every day that affects millions of lives or lives within our own communities. And we have to stand by those decisions and we have to live with those decisions. Uh, so what we try to do here at Porch Creek is um, have a, um, a group discussion because what I may think about, somebody else may not and vice versa. And we come up with a plan of action and we try our best to keep the community, our guests and the surrounding communities as safely as we can. Well, this sounds all really, really promising, April. And and how does uh, the, the the system work, or how is it compared to other communities around Atmore and other parts of Alabama where the porch band has economic interests and other casino properties? Would you say that you folks are, are better prepared than some of these surrounding communities, or do they have robust emergency management systems as well? So, for example, tomorrow I will travel up to when uh, one of our properties is located um, two hours away from the main reservation, and we will um, test our system. So we will test our system, but at the same time, I, I, I know you guys know that there is a, a little tattoo out in the, the guff right now that we're watching, uh, but right now, if it stays on its current path, it's going to miss us, but maybe we'll get much-needed rain. Um, there is very few entities in the state of Alabama who has the system in place that we currently have. Um, I can assure you there's probably no hotel rooms in the state of Alabama that will be able to make notifications within um, their hotel rooms like we will. Hopefully in the next year, we will be able to make those notifications inside the room. Uh, it's all about safety and allowing people the ability to make decisions um, and just like Jake mentioned, we have got to sit down with our families. We've got to talk with them. We've got to uh, give them alternatives. We've got to um, give them ideas. We're in the field, so we know what the alternatives are. But sometimes I think we take that for granted. And when we take that for granted, we think everybody thinks like us. Obviously, they don't think like us. Uh, but it's our job as emergency managers to put ideas in people's head and then allow them to make the decisions that is best for them and their families. But no, we are very proud of the, um, the resources that we have been able to obtain and we um, hopefully, um, and you know yourself as well as I do, uh, one of our properties is located um, next door to a subdivision that of course is not owned by the tribe. Well, when we make those notifications, those, those people within those homes or in that subdivision will also hear our notifications that the property is under a tornado warning. Um, so we, you know, just by, the, by their location, they will be able to listen and hear what our notifications are for our individual properties. Well, that's uh, really good news there, April. And then the families and, and community members there in Atmore, and 
I mean, in, in addition to all of these systems that are in place there by the tribe, uh, there's also things that they can do themselves in terms of just safeguarding their homes and, and just making sure that they're more responsive. And what do you recommend to those families to, to do individually so that they can maximize their safety? Right. Just, just as, as Jake mentioned earlier, you need alternate ways of receiving um, information. I am amazed at with everything that is going on in the country as far as climate change and, and the, the tornadoes and the hurricanes and wildland fires uh, that people don't have an alternative. So we encourage everybody to get an app on their phone, something that's going to wake them up. Uh, one of the things that I do is is I try a lot of things. Uh, some things work, some things doesn't work. Um, I have um, people may not understand that in our part of the country, um, the National Weather Service uh, picks up certain types of tornadoes. So that is based on the location of the Doppler radar. There's a lot of tornadoes that are created under the Doppler radar. Um, they have ionization. So I have a system that I have in my house. It just looks like a little weather radio. It picks up the ionization as it spins. So I can hear if there is a tornado formed up under the Doppler radar. Um, and uh, I, if it doesn't wake me up, then nothing will. Uh, so what I do is try out these new systems and encourage tribal members to purchase those or encourage our tribal uh, leadership to purchase them for our tribal members to have them in their homes. So there's a lot of things that we do. Now, wildland fires, we encourage people not to put straw or because another hat that I wear, I am the director over our fire department. Uh, so there's a lot of things that we try to encourage uh, people, um, keep things um we have a forestry um, department within the tribe, and they make sure that all the underbrush is um, burnt at the right time of the year, uh, make sure that the humidity is right, make sure that um, we have uh, dug a trench so that for fire breaks so that fires do not get, uh, get away from us. So there's a lot of things that we do and we encourage people to do. Um, a lot of people like shrubs and flowers close to their house. I understand that, but sometimes that also encourages a lot of um, of uh, things to happen that we don't necessarily want to happen. Um, we right. as a tribe also make sure that we have plenty of hydrants in the area so that we can tap into water if something should happen. Well, April, thank you again for uh, providing all this information and some of these tips. So some of this stuff is just things people do for themselves, you know, cleaning up around brush and things like that. Other is more tech-related, making sure you've got that radio or some other type of uh, device that you can connect with or get information in the event that you lose cell service. So. I think so many of us are just kind of acclimated to those cell phones and we feel we can trust them and they're always going to be there for us. But unfortunately, uh, they don't always work in uh, situations like this. So it's really a good idea to uh, dust off that old radio if you have one or go buy a new one. It's certainly an investment that is worth uh, the time and effort to have just a good old-fashioned old-school radio to stay alert and stay abreast of uh, changing conditions in the event of a disaster. We're going to take another break. Give us a call if you have a question or a comment. 
I'm Michael, and I used to smoke. I never used to think about breathing. Then my left lung collapsed, and I was diagnosed with COPD. Now I think about breathing all the time. I'm on an oxygen machine so I can breathe. I take medicine so I can breathe. My tip is, enjoy the breaths you don't have to think about. You don't know how long you'll have them. Smoking can cause COPD. You can quit. For free help, visit cdc.gov slash quit now. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the latest updates with the fires in Maui and tribal emergency management. If you have any comments or questions, please join us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And, of course, you can always leave a comment on any of our social media pages like Facebook or Instagram. Or just hit us up on our website, NativeAmericaCalling.com, and you can comment uh, that way as well. And let's go ahead now and talk about the Maui fire. And to do that, we are joined by Kuovehi Hirishi. And she is a reporter for Hawaii Public Radio. She is Native Hawaiian. And hello, Kuvehi. How are you doing today? Aloha, Sean. I am doing well, considering. Thanks for having me. Good. Absolutely, absolutely. And I know uh, the whole world has just been gripped by uh, the tragedy there in Lahaina and uh, the impact on Maui. So please, can you give us an update? What is the status of the recovery there in Lahaina and the rest of Maui in the wake of those horrible, horrible fires? Right now, uh, the fire itself in Lahaina is about 90% contained. It's burned through about 2,000, more than 2,000 acres. So far, 115 confirmed fatalities. Uh, only a fraction of those uh, have been identified and, and next of kin um, um, reached out to. And so we are still in the process of identifying those who have left. As you mentioned at the top of the show, 388, a list of 388 uh, unaccounted for uh, has been also released uh, to the public. So lots of loss being processed. Meanwhile, many thousands uh, living in limbo uh, as, uh, you know, the ash and uh, sort of toxic materials and chemicals and debris is still being cleaned up there in Lahaina. So they, and many of them not able to completely uh, access their homes or, or even think about uh, rebuilding at this point. Okay. Now, the 388 people who remain missing, that is that, that number is just horrifying. But last week I was reading reports that there were as many as 1,000 people missing. So uh, it doesn't sound like it's that bad then, that that number has been reduced significantly. Are, are, are we confident that there's only a, a few less than 400 people missing, or is it still possible that there could be many more? I'm not quite clear because I'm, I'm, I'm reading different reports. Right, right. No, good question. Good question. No, so there is that uh, thousand number is still a possibility. I believe the FBI had initially said 850, but the 388 names that were provided were just those who uh, we, where we could confirm um, that they were in fact missing. So the efforts are going on right now. Uh, I think uh, we had mentioned our earlier reports had said, you know, this fire was so hot, it burnt through metal. And so finding uh, any sort of sign, DNA or evidence of uh, fatalities is, is still really uh, part of what's going to happen next. 
And is it true that there's a, a possibility that many of the missing could be children? Children were, yes, uh, definitely, uh, you know, in the community there. Uh, but the details at this point on, you know, whether or not they were uh, any particular age or, uh, you know, we had one, I believe, one confirmed tourist, but they were also heavily tourist areas as well. So, uh, but those details, I think we won't get to those um, in, in for another couple of weeks at this point, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to be praying uh, for all the people there on Maui and, and all of the islands of Hawaii. And, and of course, then there's this additional issue with the fact that uh, property and land on Maui is extremely valuable and there's pressure by outside buyers. So I think a lot of folks are concerned about what's going to happen to some of these residents who've lost their homes and will they be able to afford rebuilding their homes or will they have to relocate? Uh, what's your thought on that? Cause that that's a whole nother layer to this tragedy. Right. That, you know, for native Hawaiians specifically, the threat of outsiders coming in and taking uh, our land and, and control of our natural resources is nothing new, but in the aftermath of the wildfires, uh, residents were receiving uh, solicitations from off-island real estate investors to kind of scoop up their land. The state has issued two separate warnings about predatory real estate pitches targeting local uh, residents, and there are uh, lawyers, uh, folks from our University of Hawaii Law School there on the ground helping those who are receiving those pitches. The governor, uh, Josh Green, has also mentioned uh, that the attorney general's office is looking into imposing a moratorium on land sales at this time. So we are, uh, I believe, uh, the government at least is taking action where it can, uh, hopefully, for the people on the ground, you know, um, the financial, that living in limbo uh, aspect of things. Once that calms down, then they can really clearly think through uh, when they receive these. Kuvehi, being from Hawaii there, and of course, you know, anybody who's ever been to Hawaii, I've been there a couple of times, and it's very obvious that there is a gentrification issue there, and there's a lot of money there. There's multi-million dollar homes that have sprung up in the recent decades. But did you ever anticipate that that it would just get to this point, that people have lost their homes and their speculators coming, and just that quickly – I mean, here the the fires are still they're still burning. I mean, there's still a little bit there's burning. There's still smoke, and yet there's already people coming in and trying to to take advantage. Carpet bag, right? Just just buy up property, and uh, with no regard to the people who have always lived there. What did you did you ever imagine this happening like this? No, I, I honestly did not. But I think, uh, you know, the level of devastation brought to Lahaina at this point uh, is really going to, in the rebuilding process, spark those those conversations about, you know, how much um, dependence do we want to put on the tourism industry? How much uh, protection should we perhaps have for a Native Hawaiians being able to hold on to some of that land? And Maui County has been a leader uh, in that aspect. In recent years, they've passed legislation to allow um, folks who have been on the land for upwards, I think it was 80 uh, years back, if you had title to land uh, that far back, you have a uh, sort of a property tax uh, waiver 
uh, or you get to pay the minimum property tax. So there is an awareness, uh, especially on Maui, of the need to keep folks, um, allow them to maintain their ancestral uh, lands and access to their ancestral lands. But after this devastation, I think those conversations are definitely going to be heightened. And the fire has also created issues around water rights. Uh, can you explain the issue of water in Maui and how the fires uh, drew into that and created more challenges? Uh, great uh, question. Yes, Lahaina, for those who might not know, is formerly the Venice of the Pacific. So it was an area, you can't tell from it now, but an area famed for its lush environment uh, and its abundant water resources. So right in downtown, it's been filled in. Um, you know, for the last 100, 120 or so years. Uh, but it was once a, a sprawling sort of, you know, fish ponds and, and taro patches. And so the idea of um, maintaining water rights for Native Hawaiians specifically is something that was encoded into the state water code in the late 80s. So there is a precedent there for folks. But uh, the reality is that once all our uh, sugar and Pineapple plantations pulled out in the late 90s. Uh, folks had swooped in, same idea, brought up that same land and the control of uh, the irrigation system that actually hauls water from the mountains uh, to the county system, uh, to um, the hotels. And the ownership of that water on that side, at least in Lahaina and West Maui, is about 75% private and 25%. Uh, government. And so uh, there is worry, at least uh, in the uh, immediate aftermath of the fire, that in one particular area, Kogwa'ula Valley, uh, there is only one stream that feeds about 70 individuals, mostly Native Hawaiians. And uh, there was a request from a private uh, landowner to divert that water for um, fire suppression elsewhere outside of Kowa'ula Valley. And so there was this sort of push and pull uh, to make sure that those in the valley have that access to that water for the approaching fire at the time. And this has really, I think, set off a lot of conversations in Hawaii at the highest levels over what uh, we do in these uh, disaster situations when it comes to those water rights. Okuvehi, I want to thank you as well for joining us today, and, and we will definitely be uh, keeping our eyes uh, focused uh, towards Hawaii and, and the island of Maui and, of course, Lahaina. And uh, we just pray for, for all of our brothers and sisters there in Hawaii that, uh, that their lives will return to some sense of normalcy uh, sooner rather than later. So thank you again for joining us. And I want to bring in one more guest into our conversation now. We have Adam Weintraub, and he is joining us from Honolulu, Hawaii. He is the Communication Director for Hawaii Emergency Management Agency. Hello, Adam. Welcome back to Native America Calling. Hi. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. And Adam, let's talk a little bit more about these recovery efforts and what are teams doing right now on the ground? We know that they're searching for some missing people. They're going through ruins. Can you kind of give us a rundown of what those recovery efforts look like? Yeah, the initial phase of the search and rescue uh, was uh, fairly intensive and involved uh, a number of crews, both locally and from the mainland. Uh, searching through the area that's been closed off to ensure that any human remains were identified so that they could be uh, uh, 
thoughtfully recovered and that we could begin the process of reunification uh, and identification. Uh, that first phase has been about 99% completed. Uh, there is still some search activity going on in the, the waters off of Lahaina, uh, and there are also some complex structures uh, that were multi-story and needed to some degree to be, uh, uh, they, they call it delayering, uh, which did involve the use of some heavy equipment uh, to, to remove the immediate hazards and allow people to access in there. And those will be gone over again to make sure that they haven't missed uh, any potential human remains that can be identified. Uh, there's been an attempt. I, I know it's been. There's been a lot of frustration about people not being able to access the burned area. Um, but one of the things that they're trying to do is to limit the access to that area because number one, we want to make sure that we have the best chance of identifying everybody who might be found in that area. And number two, we want to treat the remains with the, the respect that's in keeping with the cultural considerations of the Native Hawaiian population of that area. Right, right. And Adam, of course, you know, there have been a lot of criticisms and, and naturally so with with this big of a tragedy. But what are some key lessons that uh, your agency has learned from this fire and from this tragedy that you're going to be able to implement going forward? Well, I think a, a tremendous amount of our of our effort over the past several weeks has been to support the folks in Maui as they provide shelter and assistance to the folks who were displaced by this fire. Uh, I think as with every incident of uh, emergency management, there will be uh, a going back and seeking the lessons. I think the, we've seen uh, that there was a decision made by the new leadership at the Maui Emergency Management Agency that because of the concerns and the fear that they are going to be more aggressive in using the warning sirens. We saw that over the weekend with the uh, flare-up in the Kanapali area that uh, burned about 12 acres. Um, just to ensure that everybody knows that there is a and, and there was a more collaborative approach to how we used the alert warning system, um, which was possible because, of course, this was a much more isolated incident. It wasn't wildfires across multiple counties and, and uh, engaging almost all of the personnel and driven by the high winds. Uh, but I think there will be longer term lessons, and it's just going to be a question of using the findings that the attorney general will uh, bring together with the outside review party that's been engaged uh, and also looking at all of the uh, the lessons that we individual participants in the incident both in Maui and here in Oahu can bring to that overall global view and, and just trying to find uh, how do we move forward as the threats that face Hawaii are evolving and changing with with climate change and with development. And Adam, we had a guest uh, on our show earlier this month from Hawaii uh, when we first began talking about the Lahaina fires, and he said that there just wasn't time. There's a, a robust uh, siren system there in Lahaina, but there, just everything happened so quickly. The fire swooped in so quickly. People didn't have time to respond. So some of these criticisms regarding the sirens and the response and things like that, he said it, there just wasn't time. No no system would have been adequately able to warn people to, to get away at enough time. Do you agree with that, or, or are there some weak links in the chain there with regard to those sirens and the response that needs to be improved? Well, I've certainly heard that perspective. 
and um, I think that that's one of the reasons that this attorney general's outside review will be so helpful is because it will kind of enable us to revisit some of those questions outside the immediate press of whose fault is it? Why didn't you? Um, there, there's always a lot of, anytime you've got an incident that has this kind of loss of life, there is an immediate sense that this must be somebody's fault. Uh, but I was in uh, California during the Paradise Fire, during the campfire, and it's definitely true that there are times when the resources that are available to uh, fight a fire and to alert the public are just overwhelmed by the incident itself. Now, whether that could have been fixed by additional mitigation, uh, whether there should have been a more aggressive program of managing dry vegetation, you have to remember that this we we Maui went from uh, no drought to almost 50% drought in a period of just a few weeks. Uh, these were not unforeseeable risks, but they were rapidly changing risks. And those kinds of rapid changes, I think, are something new in the climate here in Hawaii that we've been seeing more recently in the past few years. Uh, so I, no doubt there will be lessons to be learned, but I don't want to offer an opinion as to uh, what those lessons will be until we've had a chance to look at the whole situation. Well, Adam, I want to thank you for joining us as well. And at this point, we are out of time. So to all of our guests today who have joined us to talk about the fire in Maui, to talk about the challenges there. Sisters. Join us again as we learn about changes that mean millions of low-income residents on our next Native America Calling. Uh, folks might lose Medicaid health insurance coverage. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. Support by AARP. If someone asks you to buy gift cards to pay off debt, it's a scam. Imposters will claim your Social Security number's at risk, or your utility company will stop service due to late payments, or you won the lottery and only need to pay some upfront costs. They'll say the fastest way is to buy gift cards and share the numbers on the back. Anyone who tells you to pay a debt with a gift card is a scammer. More information on gift card scams at aarp.org slash gift cards. Do you want to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help. Whether it's financial help, education, or a certification, there are so many resources that any business can take advantage of. And none of them cost anything. Get help from the SBA. Do what I did and improve yourself and your business. For your small business needs, go to sba.gov start. All SBA programs and services are extended to the public on a non-discriminatory basis. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.